All right. Straight faces, everybody. Today, we have a serious topic to discuss. We're going to talk about the government. Stop it. I said this is serious. Get sad again. What? Government? What is it good for? Uh, absolutely nothing. Listen to me. All right, all right, all right. Seriously, though, the government is good for a lot of things. Like, um, well, take for instance. Hmm. <laughs> Conspiracy Guide. My name is Sean, and I will be your non-discretionary and always essential Conspiracy Guide. Thank you for listening. Yeah, today we are going to talk about the government. When conspiracy theorists say they, as in they do this and they do that, most of the time they're referring to the government. So, we got to talk about them. And although we may not be discussing some of the more nefarious parts of the government, today will be an overview of just kind of what that government is and perhaps how it's gone off the rails. But before we get into that, I want to thank everybody who has listened to the previous episodes. And thank you for listening today. I have been pleasantly surprised by the number of listeners to these first few shows with my struggles with Twitter and the fact that my business has never been busier and I have an infant and a toddler at home and it's hunting season. Well, I really have no business doing a podcast at all, but I really enjoy it. So I'm going to keep doing it. And if you enjoy it, if you think it's beneficial in any way, I would really appreciate if you could help me by sharing this episode or even one of the other ones. Definitely would appreciate that share. Certainly helps me out a lot. Anyway, let's get into it. So the government, what is it and what is it good for? I live in the USA, so what a, most of what I say here is going to probably be concerned with the U.S. government because that's what I'm familiar with. However, I have been surprised at the number of international downloads and listens that we've had. And hey, shout out to Mongolia. I really want to visit Mongolia. That's where the Tataria stuff is. But anyway, yes. Um, so what I'm going to say here is probably U.S. government based because that is... Uh, that, that's what I know. That's what I'm familiar with. However, the U.S. government structure originally was pretty good. So I feel like Churchill was right when he said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the rest. And the U.S. isn't a straight democracy, but let's not get all tied up in that. But I think you get my point. Governments, well, they all suck. And because the U.S. is one of the least sucky, well, 
you can probably relate wherever you are. Because the chances that your government is equally bad or worse than the U.S., (laughs) well, those are pretty good odds. All right, so how do I feel about government? Well, right now in my town, there is something happening which pretty much sums up how I feel about government and politics broadly. There are signs in my town right now, and uh, well, not the Black Lives Matter signs, Uh, There are tons of those, though. It's hilarious. My town is as white as the driven snow. But uh, Black Lives Matter signs everywhere. They love black lives so much in this town uh, that they put the signs in their yard. However, they couldn't possibly live where there are any black lives. Really, though, my town is about 0.3% black. Not 3%, but 0.3%. 3%. So for every 100 white people around here, there's approximately a, a third of a black person. But uh, yeah, Black Lives Matter signs everywhere. And um, so it just makes me wonder that uh, you're a, a white person living in an all white town, but you have to put the Black Lives Matter sign in your yard that the lady doth protest too much, me thinks. <laughs> but uh yeah, I don't care. I didn't move here because the the town is all white, but I also don't um, put uh, racially motivated signs in my yard either. So uh, so anyway, no, it's not the BLM signs that that are the microcosm of how I feel about um, about politics and government. The sign battle that's playing out in my town right now is about power lines, and the signs say, "Say no to the power company." save our trees, bury the lines. And what it is, is that the power company has requested that they be able to trim the trees that are in danger of disrupting the power service. And some of these trees are on private property, obviously. So it seems like a reasonable request to me, but the, you know, the uppity whites (laughs) in my town demand that the power company bury them. Now, the funny part is they act as if their position is to save the trees, but we live in a forest. I mean, there's trees everywhere. Trust me, if one of these majestic trees was in danger of falling on one of their Range Rovers, well, trust me, that 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 tree would be firewood immediately. So the position is, um, uh, according to these signs, the position is resist the maintenance that the power company would like to do uh, to keep the power on so that we can force them to make our town more aesthetically pleasing. And uh, so there you have it. Um, Everyone on both sides of this stupid issue has demands which aren't being met. Everyone wants action of some kind, but, you know, nothing is happening. And so the way I feel about it is, do I really care if some, you know, bitchy neighbors extort the power company to bury the lines, which looks better anyway? No, not really. But would it be better if everyone just shut the hell up and did their job so that my power stays on? I mean, I think that would be the best option. But uh, all I know is that I am blaming everyone when my power eventually does go out. So so there it is. That's government broadly to me. Uh, it's much ado about nothing. It's um, disingenuous arguments and fake outrage and kind of rampant ineptitude. 
So to sum up my overall opinion of government, it's it's disdain, it's disappointment, and it's uh, ever increasing apathy. I would I would say. And I hope that this episode is not going to be too much of a black pill for you. Uh, if you're not familiar with the all the pill references in conspiracy theory culture, uh, black pill would mean that you're just uh, completely uh, hopeless about, you know, the situation. Uh, a red pill is like you've woken up and now you're seeing everything uh, for what it truly is. Um, a blue pill, that's your like CNN, MSNBC watchers. And the white pill... Uh, the white pill is the the hopeful position. So anyway, if you hear people talk about colored pills, uh, that is what they're talking about. So the main problem with government is mostly in big government, these giant and bloated organizations. Like any organization of its size, though, I'm not talking about all the people who make up the organization. Of course, there is good and bad people. Most of them are just there kind of in the middle. Uh, they just have a job. They're just taking a paycheck. And I get that. You know, you, you got to support your family. Everyone's got a mortgage. Totally understand it. No, what I'm talking about is the structure that uh, that makes up the government, these massive, massive organizations. And speaking of the people that make up these organizations. The U S government is the largest corporation that has ever existed. And government is a corporation. It's a chartered corporation of the people. <coughs> Excuse me. If you're familiar with running a business, then you know that your largest cost is personnel. It's very expensive to have people work for you. So, how many people are there in the U.S. government? Well, the federal government in the U.S. essentially employs about 9.1 million workers. And that right there is about 6% of the total employment in the United States. That figure is about 2.1 million people who work directly for the federal government. It's about 4.1 contract employees. It's about two point uh, or, or uh, two. It's about two. Yeah. About 2 million grant employees and uh, 1.3 million active duty military personnel. And there's about 500,000 postal service employees. Shout out to the postal service employees in my life. Now, you can also add to that figure about 7.4 million state and local uh, government employees. And so you can actually bring the total of government employees in the U.S. up to about 16.5 million, <coughs> excuse me, which makes up about 18% of the total U.S. workforce. So there you go. Bunch of boring statistics. But is that sustainable? I mean, is it wise for us to have that many people on the government teat? When you think about the largest companies running right now, Amazon has about 1.3 million workers and they made about $33 billion last year. McDonald's has 1.9 million workers and they made seven and a half billion. Uh, not too bad. Walmart has 2.2 million workers and about 
$13.5 billion in profits last year. Those are pretty good numbers. Now, the U.S. government produces, well, nothing. No profit. It's all spending. And uh, that spending is taken from us, the taxpayers, and essentially like those companies I just mentioned. It's taken from your paycheck. It's taken from a portion of everything you buy and property taxes and on and on and on. So we're all paying for this. So what do we get? You know, mostly rules, regulation, paperwork, red tape, and in my opinion, a bunch of heartache and a lot of debt. $31 trillion in debt. $31 trillion. Now, it can be hard to conceptualize just how much of our money they have wasted, but it might be helpful to understand it this way. Now, if I give you $1 every second, here's a dollar, here's a dollar, here's a dollar, well, you would be a millionaire in 11 and a half days. Not too bad, right? A millionaire in 11 and a half days. It's pretty quick. It's a lot of money. Now, to be a billionaire, it's going to take you some time. It's going to take you 31 and a half years of me giving you a dollar every second. And then you'll be a billionaire. But what about a trillion? How big is a trillion? If I was to give you that dollar every second and I owed you a trillion dollars, it would take me 31,000 years to pay you off. Actually, about 31,688 years. That's a long time. So to put that into perspective, if the U.S. government was going to pay off its debts that way, we're looking at about 991,200 years. Yeah, that's right. Just a shade under a million years to pay off our debt. And it's not like we've accrued that over the entire history of this country. No, that's a relatively new thing that we've been building up debt in this massive way. So if our government was a business, I would say that this venture is struggling. And we, the people, are the capital for this venture. We are the investors in this endeavor. And I don't know, what are we getting for our investment? Well, it depends on where you look, but uh, each taxpayer is on the hook for approximately $300,000. That's right. That $31 trillion figure, if you take that and divide it amongst all the taxpayers, yeah, that means we each owe about $300,000. Now, I've been paying this whole time. Uh, I don't know how we accrued all this debt when I've been paying the whole time. What are you guys doing with my money? <laughs> who did that? Uh, who decided to make me a debt slave? Oh, we should probably shut this, this business venture down. I, I don't think it's, uh, it's paying for itself here. And, 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 and let me say financially, I think it might shut itself down. Um, we don't produce much anymore. And the only reason that our government hasn't completely financially collapsed is because of dollar supremacy. Our main export is the U.S. dollar. Um, we have forced the world 
to use our debt instrument, which is the U.S. dollar. But some of them are trying to get out of this agreement. Um, right now, all global oil transactions are done with U.S. dollars. And this is the a big reason that our money here is so valuable. Currently, uh, there are countries that are interested in doing these transactions in their native currency. BRICS, which is an uh, uh, an acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, uh, South Korea, they're trying to make their own reserve currency that is backed by gold. And just before I recorded this episode, I read that there's a bunch of new countries that are just clamoring to join this coalition. We're going to talk more about this kind of stuff in the future, but uh, just know that our financial prosperity here in the U.S. is not really due to classic good business practices, but more to do with the fact that we control the parameters in which that business is done. If that changes, if that slips out of our grasp, well, our quality of life is certainly going to change. Anyway, back to the government. What are all those people in the government doing? Are they creating a better and more prosperous place for us to live? Well, these days, clearly not. Um, Most of them are just keeping a job in the blob. I feel like we have the Henry Ford system of government. So before Henry Ford came along, uh, the, the couple of automobiles that were built were built by a few artisans who built that car start to finish. They were skilled people that built that car. After Ford, the assembly line was basically a bunch of people along this long assembly line and like one person would put on the wheel. Like all day, that was their job. It was just put on a wheel, wheel, wheel all day long. Now, that's great for auto manufacturing because we can't all afford Bugattis. But where governance is concerned, well, it's a disaster. All those people, and you never really get to talk to the person who makes any decisions. We literally have an army of order takers and processors and filers and compliance officers and protocol makers and red tape. But if you need a decision, well, that person hardly exists anymore. And it's largely being replaced by an algorithm anyway. We have never had more people in the government workforce. And yet getting a decision from an actual human has never been more difficult. I mean, Congress doesn't even make laws anymore. You remember Schoolhouse Rock? Remember, I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Yeah, that was what we were told. And perhaps that was the case then. But that's not the way it works anymore. Uh, in that cartoon, you know, there was like the local representative and the uh, his constituents brought to him their idea and they said, we need a law. So he types it up and he takes it to the committee and the committee dutifully um, works on that bill and deliberates it and takes it before Congress and they all vote to make sure it's good for the people. And then it gets sent over to the Senate. 
the um, August Senate where they uh, also deliberate and they vote on it and then it gets sent to the president and he has veto power. Well, yeah, that's uh, how it should work. But uh, that's not really the way it works anymore because the people in our government, the people in those Congress and Senate seats, they don't want to make laws. They don't want to have a voting record that they're held to rigidly because their job in the end is to raise money and to get reelected. And so if they're making laws that people don't like, well, uh, you're going to piss off some people and it's going to be harder to get elected. So what they really want to do, what they really want to do is talk about the things that they're going to do um, and tell you all the great things that they're going to do and hope that you forget the next time it comes time to vote for them and offload that responsibility onto people in the unelected bureaucracy who don't have to rely on elections to hold their jobs. So if Schoolhouse Rock existed today, it would probably sound something like, well, I'm just a rule or I'm just an order or I'm just a fee or I'm just a regulation and I was made up by an unelected bureaucrat in an organization whose job it is to sustain the system and create more jobs and more rules and more protocols just to justify their budget. All right. I'm not a singer. But anyway, that's what it would sound like today. Let's get into some examples of 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 such things. All right. HHS. Ugh, the Department of Health and Human Services. This department has 80,000 employees and their budget is a mind-blowing 1.6 trillion dollars 1.6 trillion dollars and you might say how in the world is that even possible that's like the total tax revenue or income tax revenue well welcome to modern monetary theory anyway again we'll cover that in a future episode but there's about 170 million taxpayers in the u.s in 2022 or at least that's the best i could find so that puts each taxpayer at a bill of about $9,411 for our public health. <laughs> so let me get this straight. A pangolin sneezes in China and it brings the world to its knees. At least that's what we're told. Despite the 80,000 employees who were paid really well and their only job is health services. I mean, it's in their name. But I guess that one just completely caught them off guard. So we paid about $10,000 each for their services. And the best they came up with, the very best they came up with was, well, you got to shut down your business and you got to stay at home and you got to take this vaccine that, you know, we couldn't be bothered to test. <laughs> well, that's it. That's it. That's what you got for your money. And um, yeah, seems kind of expensive. Seems like a little bit too much. Oh, and by the way, that $1.6 trillion, well, that's a 23% increase over the previous year. So that's the reward they got for the great job they did. But uh, me personally, I'd like a refund. Can I get a refund? I don't think I'll be able to. But uh, they're going to fail upward, as government does. Their budget will continue to increase. 
and they will sitting or sit around um, thinking of new ways to inconvenience you and not really protect you from anything. It doesn't seem. And that's kind of what you get when you deploy armies of busybody Karens that have bulletproof job security, no real measurable objective, no punishment for failure and guaranteed budgets. Also, I mean, let's just consider how good this pandemic was for public health agencies. I mean, that was a real, that was a real boom for them, wasn't it? So do you think we've seen our last pandemic? (laughs) No, I think another bat is going to fall into a bowl of soup to justify my $10,000. I think that's what's going to happen. I don't think we've seen our last uh, pandemic if they can help it. So anyway, that's an overview of HHS in total. But within HHS, there are departments within departments within departments. It's like inception. (laughs) Now, what are some of these departments? Well, how about the administration for strategic preparedness and response? They lead the nation's medical and public health preparedness for response to and recovery from disasters and public emergencies. Uh Preparedness, you say. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Bang up job recently. And uh, your website is essentially a pharma sales place. So surprise, surprise. Now we have the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Healthcare Research and Quality, whose mission is to provide evidence to make healthcare safer, higher quality, and more accessible and equitable, buzzword, equitable and affordable. Yeah, so um, I don't know if you guys are aware of this down there at AHRQ, but healthcare is the third leading cause of death in the U.S. Yeah, right. That's medical mistakes. Several studies have shown this to be true. One of them, notably from Johns Hopkins. It was a 2016 study that placed cause of death from medical error in the number third spot. And that study was on the low end. There's other ones that show it almost twice as high. All right, guys at AHRQ, uh, keep up the good work, I guess. You guys are killing it. You're killing something. How about the agency for... Toxic Substances and Dietary Registry. Hmm. This one prevents toxic substances and adverse health effects and uh, a diminished quality of life associated with exposure to hazardous substances. I mean, come on, Atster. I guess they don't all get uh, good acronyms, but anyway. Um, have you guys seen what your sister organization, the CDC is injecting into kids? I mean, you guys might want to take a walk down the hall and just ask a few questions. I'm just saying, how about the substance abuse and mental health services administration? Well, it's right there in the name. It's about substance abuse and mental health. Obviously these guys are doing a stellar job, right? Hmm. Anyway, there's also the OHRP. Now, this is my favorite one. This is the Office for Human Research Protection. Finally, finally, some someone in this list doing a good job. So these guys are all about medical testing on humans. Wait a second. Where were these guys during the recent rollout of the COVID vaccine? Ugh. Well, I don't blame them. Not totally, because these guys barely have a website. 
I'm I'm kind of picturing Milton from from Office Space running this department. It's like, um, 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 excuse me, can can you guys please stop researching on humans? And HHS is like, yeah, we're just gonna keep experimenting on people. And if you could just move your office down to the basement, that'd be great. Uh, it was hard to find, but I think. I think I found that these guys have a budget of about $6.7 million a year. It's adorable, actually. It's hilarious, though, that the one department that probably does something noble has been relegated to the governmental broom closet. But, hey, that's HHS. And that's just one department. One department in the federal government. And there are others. Oh, boy, are there others. How about, um, let's see. DOT, 60,000 employees, $75 billion. And oh, just recently they got a $1.2 trillion infrastructure, COVID money laundering, what, whatever it is, act. So big money coming your way, guys. Um, housing and urban development, $70 billion and 9,000 employees. I don't live in a government house. I, I don't know if you do. A federal government house. I, I don't even know what that is. Uh. But I got to say, DOT and and HUD, I mean, $70, $70 billion, those are rookie numbers. You guys got to get those numbers up. Next time, start a war with Russia. <laughs> You'll do way better. All right, now speaking of budgets, um, here's something to think about. What if I told you that your family was headed toward a financial calamity, but there was an option uh, to, to correct the situation and save your family from that disaster? And what do you have to do? You have to cut out 1% of your budget. That's it. 1%. Could you do it? Well, if the consequences, conse- excuse me, if the consequences were certain financial ruin, I'll bet you could tighten up your uh, belt a full hefty 1% to save your family. I'll bet you could. Certainly there are people who, who couldn't. I understand that. But for the most part, eh, we could all cut out a 1%, I think. But your government, no, your government cannot, um, not even close. So this idea has been sadly moping around Capitol Hill for decades now, I guess. Uh, It's called the one percent plan or the one penny plan. And, uh, you know, Ben Carson and Rand Paul have talked about it. And it's really just that simple. Cut out one percent from each department's budgets and they can balance their budget in something like five years. There's been a bunch of iterations, but uh, Rand actually brought one of them to a vote in the Senate and the the Senate treated it like it was a case of monkeypox or something, which is, I guess, kind of a bad analogy, because if I had to guess, uh, there's there's all kinds of monkeypox <laughs> uh, going around the, the Senate. <laughs> Lindsey Graham uh, pr- probably got uh, <laughs> got a bad case of the monkey box allegedly allegedly he does <laughs> allegedly i've <clears throat> quite certain allegedly but uh but really um i i think it only got something like 20 votes and um uh, and that was only for non-discretionary spending our stalwart leaders couldn't see it fit to cut out a measly one percent to stave off the pending economic collapse and uh, 
just recently ran, uh, came out with a new plan, and now it's called the Six Penny Plan because that inflation is a bitch. <laughs> uh, they couldn't do the one one penny plan, so uh, Six Penny Plan probably not going to happen. But uh, the point is that government spending is like the universe; it's ever expanding outward. You know, if you believe that sort of thing, but uh, they're never going to reduce spending. Um, there's no profits to factor in. There's no balance sheets to consider. It's just a money grab. And if they grab less, their budget shrinks. Uh, they never have to accept even a penny less if they can help it. It's as simple as that. Uh, they aren't concerned with with being profitable or viable, uh, viable, vi- viable, viable. Uh, it's just growth and without regard to cost. So, all right. So, so far the government is ineffective. It's insanely expensive and without modern and, and with, um, without what I'm trying to say here, geez, uh, without sound money policy or with modern monetary policy, I should say, there doesn't seem to be any kind of limiting factor. Well, Martin Luther King Jr. said that uh, the moral arc of history is long, but it points towards justice. I will say the arc of government always points toward tyranny. And that's because it can't point in any other direction. Government is an exercise of authority. So by its nature... It is opposed to freedom. It really is just a matter of how sharp that arc bends. Here in the U.S., we have a constitution, and it simply lists our rights. Initially, these were laid out to tell the future government that our rights listed were God-given and that our freedom does not derive from the government, but it is their job to defend those God-given rights. And these guys knew what was up. They, I think they really did try to cover all the angles. Obviously, they didn't get all of them, but they knew how insidious the allure of power is. And I think they did a pretty good job, all things considered. It is one of the best possible systems. And in its original design, it could be effectively limited. That was the intent of their separations of powers. But another thought exercise on this one, if you can, just draw circles in your mind for the three branches of government. Picture separate circles for our executive, legislative, and judicial branches all spread out, doing their thing. Now, this was the original intent. But now, if you start drawing smaller circles off of these, And then smaller circles off of those. These represent the kind of unelected departments and the policymakers and the NGOs and the think tanks and the government partners and on and on and on and on and on. Now, eventually those little circles are going to just mash into the other ones and zoom out a little bit and you've got just one giant blob. There's no separation at all. Government in this way kind of just grows like cancer cells. So we aren't really governed by laws on the books anymore so much as we are governed by the whims of the unelected unelected agencies of that blob. 
A good for instance here is the CDC put a moratorium on evictions during the pandemic. So the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, took it upon themselves to tell you what you can or cannot do with your private property. When when was this under the purview of the CDC? When did we vote on this? Now, I'm not making the case that people should be evicted because they can't pay their rent because their job was shut down by the government because that's who shut their jobs down. So the government in this blob does not exist to serve you. The government in its modern form is just meant to be system sustaining. The blob has to reinforce itself and prop itself up. It's essentially just a giant governmental circle jerk. We have, uh, we've made not just an industry out of this circle jerk, but we've made the largest industry to ever sit upon this flat earth. (laughs) Anyway. um, And the problem is that so many people are on the take now that they just depend on the blob and there are very few that are willing to do anything about it. And that's unfortunate because we do need to do something about it. But do we even need government? Well, yeah, I mean, we need some government. We probably need some small federal government to handle disputes between our states. We probably need a military to protect our sovereign borders. However, much in the same way that the public health agencies need you to be sick and unhealthy to justify their existence, well, the military and its parasitic industrial complex, they need wars to justify their existence and their budget. And trust me, they will find a war to do so. Ever since Teddy Roosevelt said, speak softly, but carry a big stick. We as a nation have been using that stick to poke it in the eye of just about every nation naive enough to get in front of it. We didn't invent this method. No, we are standing on the shoulders of giants here, of the giants of uh, colonizers, such as the English and the Dutch of the Spanish, the goats of colonization, if you will. So do we need a military? Yeah, we probably do because power abhors a vacuum. But as a non-interventionist, that military should stop at our borders. That dipshit George W. Bush, he said, we got to fight the terrorists over there so so, so we don't have to fight them here because they hate our freedom. Yeah, is that right? And yet our, our borders are wide open and we're funding proxy wars everywhere else. So speaking of George W. Bush and his uh, <laughs> greatest achievement in office, 9-11, have you been to an airport lately? Man, I was just recently in an airport and boy, is there a lot of security stuff and equipment and a lot of TSA agents and how much money is all that worth? I just thought about who's making this stuff. Whose contracts are these? Man, that looks expensive. And uh, it would appear by looking at all that stuff that it's done for our safety. But if you take a closer look into all of it, it's almost never really about our safety. 
In the case of airport security, it's almost 100% just a massive security industrial complex. I mean, think about it. These people who tried to get you fired if you didn't take their untested vaccine, you think they really care about your safety? I, I doubt it. In fact, no, of course they don't. These are not good people. In the general public, you can see figures that say there's like 4 to 5% of the general population that is uh, clinical psychopaths. These are basically people who will do anything to achieve their means without regards for the human emotional fallout. <clears throat> Here's looking at you, uh, George W. Think about it. Um, if you were an otherwise unskilled person with a desire to control people, I mean, where would you go? <laughs> I mean, really, the people at the top, the people who run this com- country, they are they're really the most vile and disgusting people imaginable because they're always gaslighting us. I mean, look at our president and his African cloth wearing cohorts. These are the arbiters of the uh, racial morality. It's pretty ridiculous. I mean, Joe Biden also felt it necessary to eulogize Robert Byrd. Um, This is a guy who started his own state chapter of the KKK and um, attempted to filibuster the Civil Rights Act. Now, I'm not saying that people don't deserve redemption, but by their standards, that shouldn't be acceptable. So at the very least, it's, uh, you know, standards for for thee and not for me. I mean, you can hardly throw a rock in D.C. without hitting a politician who's worn blackface. And there's plenty of examples. How about Larry Craig? Remember Larry, Larry Craig, Larry, I take a wide stance, Craig, who uh, got busted trying to blow dudes in a uh, Minneapolis uh, airport. Meanwhile, Larry was trying to keep the gays out of the military. Perhaps he just wanted to keep them all at home for himself. Um also, also one of uh, Larry's gay hookers was also involved with Ted Haggard, the evangelist uh, mega pastor who got busted um, doing meth and screwing dudes. And um, although Ted Haggard is not a politician, he was at the head of an organization with over 10,000 members. So you can see there's a type here. <laughs> these, these people love control. And then uh, we got some... Some congressmen, uh, <clears throat> Tim Murphy is in uh, uh, Jersey, and and Scott Desjardins is in some uh, some Bible Belt state, Texas, maybe. Anyway, uh, they're they're both um, pretty prominent uh, um, um, House members, and they were were are I don't I don't know they might still be there. Um, they're they're staunchly against abortions, except of course. When, uh, when it came to their mistresses, um, yeah, these dudes in those cases, when their mistresses got pregnant, they were very pro-abortion, very, very pro-choice. Uh, they were very pro their choice. You could say, um, I believe it was Dejare who I think he's a doctor and one of those mistresses was his patient. Ugh, yikes. Um, like I said, there's no, there's no shortage of them. I mean, even on the sort of more minor end, in my opinion, Ted Cruz flying off to Cancun while his fellow Texans were freezing. I mean, he only flew home because he got caught and conservative media could only like twist themselves into so many knots trying to defend him. 
by the way, if I found out that Ted Cruz was doing meth and gay hookers, I wouldn't be shocked. <laughs> Not in the slightest. Uh, and you know, there. To be fair, there there might be good ones in government. I I don't know. I can't think of too many right offhand. Maybe maybe Senator Hawley. Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> not too many. And I I think what it is is that that I'm just against being ruled, but especially I'm against being ruled by those who would seek out such a position. It's it's kind of like um, that that line. Um, I I wouldn't be a part of any group that would have me. He was. WC fields or something like that. But, uh, but there it is. There's the conundrum. The people who want these jobs have a personality defect. The fact that they want to rule over us, that's not good in my opinion. And, and they're liars because their thoughts are not their own. They say whatever the focus groups and the lobbyists and the campaign managers and the handlers and the speech writers tell them to say. So, by that very nature of their position, they have to be liars and they must disregard their own morals and intuitions. You know, that is, of course, if they have any. A good example of this is uh, the trans issue. Currently, we have like all these like hundred year old politicians who, you know, they went their entire lives thinking that there were males and females and that there was a difference. And within the last couple of years, somehow they all think that men can get pregnant. I mean, tell me, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, um, when did you realize that this was a fact of nature? Well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe Pelosi realized it the whole time. Who knows? Her husband's a weirdo. Uh, did you see that story? <laughs> Ooh, somebody sure was getting into Paul Pelosi's back door, all right, but I don't think it was the way the media was reporting it. And there was a hammer involved, but, uh, uh, anyway, I, you know what I'll, I, I'm going to post an affiliate link for that hammer, the alleged hammer. <laughs> oh boy. Any, anywho, um, in this day of like fame and fortune politics and the massive, uh, government cash cow of employment and contracts, it's, it's really not surprising that we're attracting people who are not fit to run our lives. We end up with a system of government that's arc will inevitably court, uh, uh, curve toward tyranny. And at its current critical mass right now, that arc is, I mean, it's bending really hard. It would seem like I'm kind of, well, was I? Yeah, it, it kind of seems like I'm going pretty hard at Democrats on this episode so far. And you may ask, Sean, are you against Democrats or are you against Republicans? And the answer is yes, because I believe that less government is the best option. We have so many historical instances that prove this to be true. I mean, so many examples of government going off the rails because there was just too much of it. The Republicans always point to socialists and communists and the Democrats that, well, they call everything Hitler because Hitler was a nationalist or whatever. And it's kind of like that Spider-Man meme where they're all pointing at each other. And it's because it doesn't really matter what form of government it is. If there's too much of it, 
uh, they're going to screw us. And in many cases, as we have seen, they're going to actually kill us. I mean, just look at the governments of the world's body count. Yikes. I mean, when we talk about all these systems of government, common denominator is that they're governments. So it would seem that the natural extension of that is to just limit governments in all form. And if our, if our rights are God given, then God is freedom. And that's what he has chosen for us. So nature is freedom. That means government is anti-nature and anti-God, despite what these moral grifters will tell us. Now, one of my favorite things ever, and I, and listen, if there's anyone out there who's listening, who makes video montages, please find the like nineties and 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 two thousands era, like um, Jesus pandering that the politicians did. I mean, it was absolutely hilarious. This was still during an era where uh, acting like you were a Christian was good politically, and so there's there's really all these instances of these uh, you know public serpents acting like they uh, love Jesus and praying and stuff. Oh my gosh, are they hilarious? If I was actually skilled at making these montages, I would make one. Who knows? Maybe it's already out there. If if you know where that's at, send it to me because my goodness, uh, those are are hilarious. Anyway, um, so so yeah, government. Uh, what was I saying? Anti um, anti nature, anti God. But um, you know, is it a necessary evil? Yeah, maybe maybe it's a necessary evil. But one thing it's not is an intrinsic good. So we mu- if we must have it, if we must have this government, then we must realize that uh, this is the fact and we must rein in our government. And that really is the only moral position we can take. So as with my last episode, I think I need to drop a disclaimer in here and I am not advocating for violence of any kind. I am totally against violence of all kind, totally against it. Um, you know, and on a macro level, I'm a non-interventionist, you know, on personal level, I'm all about, um, you know, peace and harmony, uh, no violence, none, no, no violence. And because it's not necessary. Uh, we don't need to be violent. The, the government ultimately needs our consent. The problem is that they get it. They currently do. Um, and that's because they they put people on these teams. And so uh, we're all fighting each other um, on these issues rather than coming together and saying, hey, let's all just be free and do our own thing. Uh, we, we don't need this massive bureaucracy of rules and regulations to, to uh, you know, for us to exercise our humanity. We can do this with a limited government. So we need to uh, we need to make that change. We need to let that be known. And that should be our position. Now, I'm sorry if I have offended those of you that work in government. The vast majority of you, like I said before, I know you're just doing a job and um, you've got a family to feed. You've got rent to pay. I totally understand that. Uh, the, the line here is it's the it's the boots, not the suits. It's not your fault. You have a job. And um, I respect you for doing your job well. But what can we do? Um, Because again, conspiracy theories without solution, they hardly matter. So 
the first thing I'll say is that we must realize um, what government is and wherever possible, we have to divest our support from big government. We have to divest our support, certainly from the federal government. The local governments that serve the will of their small populations, those are pretty good. Um, so support local and uh, don't get caught up in the national hype. Right now, and kind of as it's always been, abortion is a very polarizing issue. And the recent ruling that came down that divided everyone, well, that ruling uh, really just said that they're going to return that decision to a more local level, to the states. And so I know that this is a polarizing issue. It's not cut and dry. And um, yeah, I'm conflicted by it to to some degree. For the most part, I'm going to come down on the side of we shouldn't be doing it or more like safe, legal, and rare. But for you, I don't really um, care about what your decision is on the topic. But it's important to realize that that ruling just brought it back down to a local level so that the governments at that level can make that decision for their own people. And that is really the morally best decision. Uh, your local government should represent you. And that's what that ruling did. So hopefully if you didn't understand that, you can at least support that now because that's what that ruling did. On that note of local, you should vote in your local elections. That's where the difference can be made. It's pretty clear that at a national level um, and, and even at a state level, the local elections appear to be, or, or the, um, excuse me, the, the national and state elections appear to be almost completely fake. I mean, we're seeing it play out right now with, uh, you know, DeSantis winning Florida by 20 points. And then in you know Pennsylvania and Arizona, those hotly contested races, they, you know, wouldn't you know it, they just happen to squeeze out some razor thin margins. Now in these modern day elections, 20 points is apocalyptic. And, you know, at a statewide race, if DeSantis can pull off 20 points, but the uh, people, the candidates that are saying much the same things that he is saying in other very swingy states like Florida and Arizona uh, can't win or, or, or lose by a couple thousand votes, well, then that leads me to think that either DeSantis is the most prolific election stealer of all time or the other elections are manipulated. But in either case, what can we do? I mean, who cares if you even vote in the large elections? That's that's what I'm going to say. That's my position. But where can you make a difference? You can vote in your local elections because those actually do make a difference. Um, and it's, it's much easier to kind of get in there and figure out what's going on, analyze the situation and make sure that that system is working for you. So focus on the local. That's where your change can be made. Uh, the next thing, do not, do not donate to a political party. Good Lord, please do not donate to a political party. Now, if you donate, uh, politically donate to a local politician. They, re they need the money and, um, whatever you do, just don't, uh, uh, donate or, or make sure that they aren't donating the money to like a PAC or a general fund or even their party broadly. 
these parties, they don't give a damn about you or what you want. Um, they just want to win at all costs. That's what they're set up to do. And that's not good for us. We also, we've got to make our, our, our opinions known. That's a large reason why I'm doing this pod podcast. I know it's going to set me up for criticism, but, um, we have to make our opinions known. And in fact, I was invited here, uh, in Connecticut to the very prestigious Prescott Bush dinner. Well, let me invited as a nice way to say it. Basically, I was asked to spend way too much money on food to support the state Republican Party. And when this person reached out to me to attend, I actually told her that I would rather burn my money than spend it on an event with that namesake. And you know what? <laughs> the event organizer, well, she actually agreed with me. And it was crazy. She she sort of explained that what she was doing was for the greater good or whatever. And, and that's fine. Um, it's not going to work on me, but you know, the point is the fact that she agreed with me on that and said that, uh, there were actually those working to, um, change that name or to do something about it. Well, that means the sentiment is brewing and people are getting sick of not being represented by their government. So I'll just say that, um, Make your opinions known. And the last one here, run for local office. In a lot of places, there are just vacant seats. And the other seats, uh, a bunch of the other seats are, are just, they haven't been challenged for a while. So throw your hat in the ring. Again, at that local level, that's where the most change can be made. And these positions are really easy to get. Here where I live, I... I ran for school board during COVID and it was just so that I could try and get the masks off these poor kids. I really didn't know anything about the schools here. And, uh, I mean, because the truth is I, I don't actually care about government schools, but I, I do care about kids being mistreated and it's not that difficult of a job anyway. Um, uh, I, I didn't win that election. Uh, it was, it was hilarious. I didn't win that election. Uh, none of the Republicans won because again, uh, we, we live in the sort of, uh, forest of black lives matter signs here in here in my Lily white town. But, uh, a few people did get my message along the way. And, um, I actually got one uh, standing ovation from a couple at the debate uh, my very poor <laughs> debate performance. But, uh, and, and, and speaking of that, there was a, I heard there was a bunch of nasty stuff being said about me going around on Facebook, but here's a pro tip. Just don't look at it. <laughs> you just don't look at it and then it doesn't matter. So, uh, put yourself out there. It's not going to kill you. Um, me personally, I don't really care if people call me a kook. <laughs> Hence the reason I'm doing a conspiracy theory podcast, but I'm here to tell you it won't kill you. So take the slings and arrows, have your voice heard and go be the Ron Swanson of your local politics. Be the thorn in the side of your local politics. So it seems like really the, the, the principles of mindfulness and local action from the last episode, well, they just translated right over into the tips for their, this episode about government. So maybe I should have just called this podcast, the mindful local podcast, but in any case, those are my tips. Those are what we can do to rein in the, uh, the massive, ever-expanding uh, 
disgusting, in my opinion, government that uh, rules over us increasingly. Now, the reading for this episode, it was pretty difficult because if you want to read a book about the size and scope and budgets of government, well, I imagine that's going to be a pretty boring episode. And in fact, if you got to this point in the podcast, God bless you. Thank you for listening to me rant about the government. So the reading for this podcast, I tried to think about the uh, reading that I've done that has inspired my thoughts or my opinions about government. One of these books, the first book is called The Octopus of Global Control. And this is by a fellow podcaster and a guy who I'm going to call my 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 podcasting spirit animal, Charlie Robinson. He has his own podcast. It's called Macro Aggressions. I'd really love for you to check it out. It's a great podcast. I doubt you'll come, <laughs> come back to mine once you hear his. It's really good. But anyway, he's also written a couple of books. One of those is called The Octopus of Global Control. And this book is talking about sort of all of the of the um, global control. And one of those octopus tentacles is the government. But the interesting thing about the government uh, tentacle is that it is its own octopus. And it itself has a bunch of tentacles coming back in the other direction of all those other things. And so uh, it's a it's a good book to kind of realize the control systems that are in place. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for a noob, but uh, hey, if you want to get into the deep stuff, there you go. Great book. Check that one out. Um, there's another one called The Authoritarians. Uh, it's by Jonathan Emord. And this one is uh, more specific about the abuses of governmental power. It's an interesting read, a little bit more of a difficult read. And um, again, it's some more high level stuff. But if you want to check that one out, I will leave a link in the description. Now, as I was uh, considering what books have really influenced the way I think about how government works, there were two that came to mind that aren't necessarily about anything that we talked to today, except for one small reference. Uh, One of those books is The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt. It's a really, um, well, first of all, it's written really well and it's, uh, and it's, it's an exciting book to read, but it just shows you the, uh, the power that somebody can wield within government. And the reason I really liked this book and this biography of Teddy Roosevelt is because I share a lot of his sentiments about the way the country should look and and how it should feel morally but he really wielded government in a way that kind of changed it forever and he was like the OG neocon and but but at that time there just kind of wasn't the governmental infrastructure in the place in place so that he could do the kind of damage that we see that it does today anyway in my in my mind, this was a really conflicting read, and it stimulated my mind to think about how government should be and where it comes from. And so I really like this book. I've recommended it to a lot of people already who who enjoyed it. I think you should check it out. But there really is one goat, one greatest of all time, where it comes to wielding government power, and that is the story of Robert Moses. There's a book called The Power Broker, And uh, first of all, if you need an extra boat anchor, uh, you can get this book. It's a massive, massive read. 
But uh, this dude, Robert Moses, he was like the Parks Department head in, in New York City. And man, this guy took his relatively innocu- uh, innocuous position and he steamrolled it into just the most powerful position there. It's, re- it's really crazy what that guy did. And in my opinion, it's kind of everything wrong with politics. But... Uh, it's hard to disagree with a lot of it. Um, I, I, Robert Moses first came onto my radar when I moved to New York City because of the outsized influence he had on that city that he still has today. His fingerprints are all over that city. So if you're interested in that, um, I'll, pu- I'll put that link in the description. But uh, hey, no worries if you don't want to read that massive book. I'm also going to post a podcast about Robert Moses uh, by these guys called the Bowery Boys who do podcasts about uh, New York City history. And in their 100th episode, they chose to do Robert Moses just because of the kind of massive figure that he is um, where New York City is concerned. So a great podcast if you're interested in Robert Moses or hey, if you're interested in New York City broadly, check out the the Bowery boys. I, I really am thankful for them for all the information they provided. When I moved to New York city, I had so much information because of those guys that I was able to draw on. I was able to kind of take a tour of the the city through what I was listening to by those guys. Anyway, man, this went on a long time. If you're still listening, I can't believe it. And, um, truly humbled. If you got to this point, let me know. Was this was this too much? Was this too long of a podcast? Uh, perhaps I should edit better. I'd love to know what you think. Um, all the socials, uh, all the very poorly ran socials, and the email address is in the the notes section. So uh, give me a shout out. Give me a comment. Let me know what you think. Thank you again for listening. And until next time. Fight the power.